On this prequel episode, we've got our Catching Fire fan poll follow-up. We're learning about Beauty and the Beast Stockholm Syndrome and why you're probably wrong about it and previewing Beauty and the Beast. Hello and welcome back to This Film is a podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's a prequel episode. A prequel to Katie's birthday episode. <laughs> the present you get to rant later on. The best present. The best present ever. We've got a whole lot. It's going to be a long prequel episode. we got a lot to talk about. So let's get right into it with our patron shoutouts. We have two new patrons, both coming in at the $5 Hugo Award winning level. They may have, looking at the dates, they may have... Should have been in the last prequel episode, but I missed them somehow. I'm not sure. Well, the second one that you have on here was definitely after the last prequel episode. The first one, I'm not sure because we got the notification from Patreon that this person had joined. But then when I went and looked at their like Patreon like profile, it says that they've been a patron since October. So I don't know what's happening. It's possible it lapsed and then they came back. I, I don't know. It's possible. I don't know. But either way, we have two new $5 Hugo Award winning patrons and they are Pat and Lynn Flakazinski. So thank you, Pat and Lynn Flakazinski. I hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, I don't know. It's an inter- It's a different one. It's an interesting name. Flakazinski. There's a Lynn Kabazinski who's well known in the bad movie universe. And I don't know if this is a reference to that or perhaps just a coincidence that you have a similar oh, name. Know. But there's a, he's been on Red Letter Media. He direct, he's stars and directs um, very like cheesy like uh, martial arts movies. Mm. Um, and he like they made they 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 ribbed one of his movies on Red Letter, but then he ended up coming on their show and they're kind of like friends now. Anyways, his name's Lynn Kabasinski. Probably no relation, but who knows. Anyways, let's get to our Academy Award-winning patrons, and they are Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Prop Fund, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, V. Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all so very much. As always, we appreciate you supporting our podcast. Let's go now and find out what people thought about the Hunger Games catching fire. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right. So this time around, we didn't have like a large number of comments, but we had a few long Very, comments. Yes. Um, so I, I tried my best to keep everything pertinent in. Um, I did cut down a little bit in some places. Uh, one thing that I did cut was that a couple people mentioned the uh, blood, the alleged blood, the red color, and yes. the champagne. And I, I cut those references out because I think it might be a little bit of a spoiler for Mockingjay. Supposedly they are spoilers. It's yeah. not something I recalled at all, but yeah. Okay. Um, so on Patreon, we didn't have any comments, but we did have five votes for the book, zero for the movie. On Facebook... We had six votes for the book and one for the movie. Adam said, I voted book largely for the same reasons I voted book in the first episode, like getting Katniss's internal monologue. It's maybe unfair because it's the nature of the limitation of the medium and not a reflection of the quality of the work, but it is what it is. I totally agree with that. 
I'm still team asexual, but I swear Katniss sitting and watching Madge play play piano could be a scene straight out of a slow burn Victorian white lesbian romance film. Portrait of a Lady Catching Fire, something well, like that. Well done. I mean, you know, I had that. <laughs> no, I had the same thought too. That's why I mentioned the, yeah. specifically watching her play piano yeah, is like, classic that type of lit. <laughs> yeah. Or movie. Like the stuff with her and Madge at the beginning, I was like, I'm still team asexual too, but I don't not ship it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also read Jennifer Lawrence's expression in the elevator less as a poor job acting embarrassed and more as Lawrence letting her own attraction slip out for a moment and checking the other actor out. But I might just be bad at reading expressions. I think I'll I sent Katie the, a picture of the expression I was talking about. That is not <laughs> the vibe I get from the expression that I that was the thing that made me think, oh, boy, that's not great. I honestly just read it as her trying to do annoyed, but I kind of love that we all got different, like, interpretations. It's definitely <laughs> her trying to do annoyed. I just think it's too much. It's just too, I don't know. It just looks not good. It just, it's too overwrought. I mean, we could, like, kind of combine these a little bit, and maybe she's just trying not to laugh. Could in be that. that moment. Yeah. Yeah, and it could be, I mean, because it is, and I don't remember if I read, because I, I remember that she did actually get naked in that scene, and I don't know if that's one of those things where maybe she didn't tell them she was going to actually be naked, and they're all, like, trying yeah. to hold character, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And so it's a little over, like, maybe Katniss's, like, Jennifer Lawrence's reaction is a little overwrought in that she's trying to hold yeah. and not break, potentially, because she is, like, like biting her tongue, almost, at least she's mm -hmm. like... Uh, anyways, the picture. And I mean, given what I've seen of Jennifer Lawrence and like interviews and things like that, it wouldn't surprise me if she were one to break character laughing yeah. on set. Yeah. Yeah. Adam also said a coal hod is a bucket for carrying coal to the hearth or a stove. So I assume that's where the name of the bar was coming from in District 12. Um, referencing the hob, the hob, I think, which I guess it's close enough. Close hod, enough. hob, that maybe there's something there. I guess it's also possible that that's just a a, uh, a typo. And they I meant checked. Hob. Oh, I checked. Okay. It, it is hod. hod. Okay. Yeah, coal hod. Yeah, I guess that could be where that comes from. Um, Adam also said, "This is a technological." And just to clarify, it's not just a. It's not a bar. In yeah, the movie, it's, it's like kind of a black bar. Market. It's like a black market trading area. In the yeah. movie, we. I think, well, no, there is like a bar there or like a restaurant type of yeah. place. But yeah, it's yeah, more than that. We see her eat soup there um, and we know that's where Haymitch gets his alcohol yeah. as well. Yes. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's just the wider like sort of trading area, yeah. under underground trading area. Which is very much out in the open. I say underground. 12. I mean, but yes, <laughs> yeah. not literally it's, underground. It's the black market that everyone knows about. Yeah. You would think it would actually be in because so they're a mining district, right? Right. You would think there would be quite a few like old tunnels that weren't used for anything anymore because you you know you yeah, tapped you would, that they, out. They could. You would think they could. They put could it put literally it in a, underground. underground. But yeah. yeah, I guess that would be dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, more dangerous than having. Well, more dangerous like for cavens and stuff. Less right. dangerous for the authorities probably. But yeah, but the authorities aren't a problem. They until weren't. Yes, until catching yeah. fire. Yeah. Um, Adam also said, this is a technologically advanced future where we have advanced genetic engineering, giant force fields, and other technologies that could reasonably be called magic by modern standards, and they're still mining coal. 
seriously, did the fucking coal lobby survive the apocalypse and get its hooks into snow? Why are they still mining coal? It can't just be because they keep everyone else at a low tech level to keep them subservient because they expend so many resources to keep a district running devoted to coal. I just don't understand that. I will agree that I think so. I think this is much more of a thematic choice than it is in any sort of practical. Like, yeah, I agree with that. I, it does definitely sort of I don't want to say cheapen the world building, but it, it is one of those things you have to not think about too much. It does feel based on the technology, like you mentioned, that we see the capital is capable of. It seems incredibly unlikely that that stuff would be running on coal. Yeah. Now, it's possible that they could be using the coal for other like using it to do stuff in other poor districts where they they are True. just like heating yeah. homes and stuff or whatever and that the capital is actually using um I mean, it, I feel like that would track for the world building. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and cuz there is but a bolt, we also know that the like the graphite mines in District 13 are shut down so they're not running nuclear or if they are right. they they're using nuclear yeah, they've I, had left over or something. I think you could potentially read it as like a loss of knowledge following this apocalyptic event and war. Potentially. See, I would say that if we didn't have hovercrafts and like <laughs> all the other yeah, technology no, that we see does it makes it but so I, little silly. I think that, there could be something to the theory that like the all of the coal goes to like these other districts that yeah. they want to keep also impoverished. Yes, I think that like, um, that makes the most sense. Uh, it was district eight, I think, was the textiles district where like where Bonnie and Twill were from, and I kind of got the vibe reading their section that it's just like perpetually the industrial revolution there yeah yes it does i will say i yeah i agree that it makes the universe feel a little like it raises questions it raises questions and it makes you kind of if you think too hard about like okay so where but where so what is all of the capital running on is it running on coal that seems unlikely based on what their technology level is yeah and if it's not running on coal what is it running on where are they getting that energy source from is it nuclear if it's nuclear I guess they still have nuclear left because District 13, they're not able to get the, you know, the stuff they need. Like that was the nuclear district or whatever. So they're not, I don't know. It does definitely raise some questions if you think about it too hard. I think you have to kind of just, and, and there's an argument to be made that ideally you would be, your, your story would do both, would both thematically do what it wanted to do, which is what the Hunger Games is doing, which is, is by having it be coal mining and tying it to something very identifiable to us and, mm -hmm. and, and a struggle and a um, sort of a, an industry like, you know, uh, famous for uh, the hard labor and, um, and, and for the labor movement and all that sort of thing. Like coal mining has been like a bit, is, is a big touchstone in the American sort of um, uh, mythos in terms yes, of like absolutely. the struggle of the you know yeah, the struggle of the, the working, working class, class. Yeah. and so i get going for that thematically so that's what she did instead of making the world make like perfect sense in terms of the technology we have like you could do what she did here with district 13 if you know in the capital they were living like a normal like 21st century life and not like a 30th century yeah. life then i think it would work um Suppose the capital could be running on like hydropower. They could be running all kinds of Depending things. Yeah, on where they it are. just it does raise a lot of questions. The yeah. book's not really going to answering. I don't think it's a huge issue. I just think it is something yeah. that ideally, if your books like you know, I think there are books that that do manage to do both. There are stories that do manage to both have thematically relevant sort of 
um, world building while also not having some of the questions that this mm-hmm. raises. But it's not the biggest issue yeah. in the world. It raises questions, but it only hurts if you think about it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> On Twitter, we had 14 votes for the book and one for the movie. April Edmansky said... You touched on the whole capital body mods thing, but I thought it was a nice big tip-off in the movie that Heavensby looks so plain. Other than a nice suit, he doesn't look capital at all to me. It's like how Cinna is the least adorned of the team. Katniss sees him as normal and one of the good ones. I would counter that by saying that Snow also looks pretty normal. Yeah. He just has nice suits. Yeah, he also looks... Yeah, he's also pretty normal. And I was thinking that, um, in fact, that that may be sort of an indication that... Not an indication. um, That I don't think it's necessarily a tip-off to us as an audience that he's not... That he's a double agent or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Strictly because Snow is also fairly you know quote unquote normal looking um and i think we're supposed to get a similar feel from the two of them that that, that they're they're so they're so the capital is all into the to, to the extravagance the luxury the and that's what we're supposed to get out of the body mod thing yeah. there's baggage with that um but i think what suzanne collins is going for very clearly is this this sort of uh in over overt like just like a, a focus on the superficial vanity and, and superfici- yeah. superficiality of the capital. That's the the critique there, and and the fact that we get some collateral damage to the whole idea of body mods at all is is not her point, but is is something to to, to talk about. But I think there the added thing to that is that with the president Snow being quote unquote sort of normal looking, and Plutarch being similar, I think is another level of of trying to set them apart from even the capital people that they're. They're not concerned with such frivolous things. They're concerned mm-hmm. purely with power. Yes. The, the capital people are concerned with all these frivolous pursuits of, of vanity and, um, and indulgence and, and all this sort of thing. And, yes, and President Snow is not. And I think we're supposed to identify Plutarch with Snow in that similar sort of class of politician or power holder who isn't concerned with the same sort of trivial things that the, the regular capital citizens are. And that's why they don't mm-hmm. look... Uh, you know, don't dress or or do body mods in the same way. Kelly Napier said, I chose the book, but honestly, I wasn't a fan of either. I wish Collins had found another catalyst to revolution other than just going back to the same concept she used in the first book. It felt lazy and uninspired to me. It reminded me of the episode of South Park where the underpants gnomes steal underpants. They knew phase one was collect underpants, they knew phase three was profit, but they couldn't figure out phase two. It felt like Collins knew her phase three was war and revolution, but couldn't find the inspiration for a unique phase two. I like the bookends of this series, but have never enjoyed the middle chunk. That's interesting. Um, I can see what you're saying that, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously like going back into the arena. There is, yeah. I, I, I can see, I, I would, I would feel that way initially, I think, but I'm, I actually am quite a fan of it mainly cause I think it does. And we talked a little bit about, um, other ways to do it that could be interesting, like having her be a mentor or something. Mm-hmm. I really did think there was an interesting wrinkle to bringing back old contestants yeah. And and not only b- doing that because then we get a little bit of the history of the games worked into the story, but more specifically, I really liked the idea of that being a thing 
that not humanizing the capital people, but the idea that that bringing back these old contestants who they 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 like and then having them compete being this thing that actually sparks unrest in the capital and mm-hmm. like creates tension within the capital was an interesting story dynamic that um I thought was a fascinating sort of study of this whole universe that she's created where because because it uh, it seems so outlandish you know that they're also like into and love just watching these kids go fight and die in an arena so the idea of adding this wrinkle where um there is some level of there there is a line where for even them it's not the same it's not as enjoyable and they don't like they don't like it because it is people they like yeah I thought there was an interesting wrinkle there that makes it sort of an interesting commentary that I don't know how you get across without doing something like that. I think there's lots of ways that obviously this middle section could have been told, like Mm -hmm. you said, being a mentor, a million other things. I, I don't dislike. And then I like also working Plutarch in as the new game maker, but then having him be sort of a double agent. I don't know. I'm, I'm a fan of the direction she took the second one, but I could see not, Thinking it's a little, you know, um, repetitive, repetitive. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. Shelby Suderman said, it's probably a boring reason, but I picked the movie because the pacing of this book kills me. I know the stuff in this part of the book is important, but it's also the reason I gave up on the series and didn't discover my love of the Hunger Games until I saw the movies. I did miss a couple of things from the book like the scene where Katniss returns home after she drops from the tree and there are peacekeepers expecting her not to show up, so Katniss, her family, Haymitch, and Peeta all play Big Happy Family. I also would have liked to see Haymitch's games and the scene where Katniss and Finnick scare Peeta. I thought it made more sense in the movie that Joanna explains who Annie is, as opposed to Peeta just guessing in the book, unless Annie is a really unusual name in Pan Am. I want to pause there for a second because that comment made me have a revelation about names in this series. Okay. So based on all of the people we've met, I, I, I noticed some common themes after seeing that comment, mm-hmm. which is that the people from the capital and the wealthy districts oh, yeah, they have, have really weird names. names. Yeah. They have ridiculous names. And then as we move to like the middle of the pack, we get kind of normal names. Yeah. Like Finnick and Annie. Those yeah. are both names. Vaguely, yeah. And then as we move back to the end, the names start to become more old fashioned mm-hmm. and almost pagan. Yeah. Like a lot of the P like district um, 11 and 12 are named after plants. Yeah. 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 Thresh and Rue mm-hmm. and, and Katniss and yeah, they, they all, yeah, it, we, we, it's definitely the names reflect sort of the rurality. Yeah. R- rurality. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word of the district. Uh, uh, like, yeah. And then, um, and again, I think the same thing with the names and the di- capitals, the same thing with the, the body mods and stuff is reflecting sort of this, this implied um, extravagance and, and mm-hmm. just vanity and just coming up with these ridiculous names to us, you know, that, I mean, all names are ridiculous. They're all made up. It's all <laughs> stupid, but <clears throat> they seem ridiculous, you know, to a 21st century English speaking audience because they're nothing like the names we have. But yeah, I, I, I uh, it is. Yeah. Very clearly the, the names are following sort of a, mm-hmm. a naming a, scheme. A pattern, yeah. yeah. 
I also wanted to mention, because I looked and you didn't see it anywhere else, somebody commented that uh, there was a, a fan film. Oh, yeah, that was on, I was on another post somewhere. Yeah, and I watched it. It's all right. It's yeah. pretty good. A fan film. There, somebody made a fan film of the Haymitch games, the, the, mm-hmm. fit, the ones that he won. Uh, and it's not bad. It's pretty good. I, over, I mean, it's 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 got it's you know it's not amazing, but it's got it's got a lot of good stuff in it. Um, and if you wanted to see a kind of a a fun fan film version of uh, Haymitch's games, you can you probably it was on YouTube. I don't remember if you probably search Haymitch Hunger Games yeah. fan film, you'd find it. Um, but it was yeah, it was pretty good. It was clear like it was something they put. It wasn't just like somebody with a camcorder. Like they put mm-hmm. some time and money and and thought into it. And uh, overall, I was I was pretty impressed with it. So, okay, back to Shelby's feedback. Now for the Ace stuff. You mentioned how in the book, Peta says the other tributes see Katniss as pure, and they're making fun of her for it. I don't like it. Firstly, because like the last book, there's no payoff. Second, Peta somehow managed to find the grossest way to put that pure like she's both innocent and above it all like sex taints you somehow but the book goes further with it because Peta doesn't see the problem and Katniss is frustrated and mad at him for it not a good look and then with that context in the book there's the baby bombshell Peta springs it on Katniss just like the relationship in the first book but here it's not as big of an ask because they're already on the same page and working as a team In both versions, he then asks Katniss if this was okay afterward, but his line in the book is, do I have something to apologize for? You could read that line different ways, but considering she's been mad at him and he doesn't get it, it kind of read to me as, are you going to overreact to this too? Not a fan. I agree with that 100%. It was actually something I meant to mention in the main episode. I had had similar thoughts about that scene and because I mentioned in the episode about how in the book he actually like apologizes yeah. at the beginning of the book about uh, sort of like, the whole relationship yeah, the thing and, and everything games, and, and yeah. kind of forcing her into that. But then goes on in this scene to without consulting her at all. Yeah. Tell the world she's pregnant. And now it ends up working out because, again, like Shelby said, they're kind of working as a team and they're both kind of in on it uh, in on it in the sense that like they're both. They both know what they're doing at this point and know that, like, we're going to be lying to mm-hmm. to make this charade go on. And she ends up being, like, ultimately okay with it. Like, she's not upset about it. Mm-hmm. In fact, she's happy he did it because the reaction it caused and that sort of thing. But I still found it, I agree, I still found it weird that Peter would apologize for not consulting her about any, you know, like, and, and forcing her into this, like, fake relationship and, and sort of taking her agency away from her and then immediately do it again. yeah. I was like, okay, great, cool. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I 100% uh, yeah, that on board with that. I was not a fan of that moment. Oh, overall, I liked what it did in the movie, but I, I was not a fan of PETA for that moment. Yeah. Okay, the makeout scene. Here's a few arguments that I'm sure people have made about how Katniss can be read as a spec in that scene. She could be aromantic and still experience sexual attraction, so an aromantic allosexual. You can be asexual and still have a sex drive. Katniss could be in another group within the ace spectrum that occasionally feels sexual attraction. 
the two most common being demisexuality, where sexual attraction can happen if there's a strong emotional connection first. And that is that was what I was trying to get across. I realized in retrospect when we were t- discussed mm-hmm. it in the episode was that <clears throat> was um, describing her as dem- demisexual, where in that moment she she is she's not aromantic. She's she she has developed this deep romantic connection with Peta, and that is what spurs this this mm-hmm. sort of physical um, sexual. Uh, uh, moment between them um, and that yeah I just didn't do a good job explaining it but that's what I was <laughs> trying to get to in the main episode no I, I think that I think I mean I think all of these make a lot of sense yeah. I do think that the the idea of that her being demisexual also makes sense yeah however none of these are how I read this scene first I think the purpose of the scene is to establish for us that Katniss absolutely is in love with Peta. This is important because it informs how she acts for the rest of this book and in Mockingjay. Throughout this book, we see Katniss finding solace in being physically close with Peeta. She craves it. There's a point when she decides she's chosen Gale, and she has to remind herself that she can't be like that with Peeta anymore. I think it's important to remember that attraction is only one piece of a relationship. There's also love and affection, and how someone chooses to show those feelings to people who are important to them, can vary wildly. Plenty of aces are turned off by sex. It's the main stereotype. But we aren't shown that Katniss is turned off by sex. What we see is her not understanding allonormativity and other characters making fun of her discomfort. Lots of people don't like it when you make fun of their comfort zone or their boundaries, especially for something as personal as intimacy, especially when they're in the minority. So to me... Because Katniss cares about Peta, she wants to be physically close with him. She finds it soothing and it feels intimate to her, which is why she wouldn't do it with him when she's planning to be with Gale. In this scene, Peta says no one would miss him, but Katniss is in love with him, and so it makes sense to me with how we've seen her show love, affection, and experience intimacy that in this moment she would want to be as physically close with him as possible. If she doesn't have a problem with sex, why couldn't her feelings, her want to be with him, be expressed through sex? Snow charges Katniss to convince everyone she's in love with Peta. Allonormativity has certain sexual and romantic expectations of how you're supposed to express your love for someone, but for many Icebeck people, those things don't feel like intimacy. They might even feel invasive and unpleasant instead. Still, when an aspec person has a partner, there's often pressure to perform allonormativity for allosexuals to prove their emotional connection is just as worthy of respect as an allo one. It often doesn't even matter how happy and healthy the actual couple is, because how can it be real if they don't do what we do? Then Peta almost dies and Finnick revives him. In the movie, we can see the other character's reaction to Katniss' emotional breakdown over this. Her pain at his loss finally proves her attachment to them. There's a shot where we see Finnick watching her after, as though he's just realized it wasn't all an act. Snow's granddaughter says she wants to love someone that much. Snow sees it, and this will have consequences in Mockingjay. It's a common trope in fiction, but with this context, it also captures the voyeurism aspect. So I think that this is all like a really, really 
fascinating. And it feels it feels reductive to me to call it like a read on the text. Yeah. But I'm I'm not meaning it reductively. I think it is a really interesting, like critical interpretation of what we're given by yes. the primary text. No, because 100%. The, the primary text doesn't come out and say Katniss is asexual. No. Right? So what we have to do is kind of pick up these breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is all a really stunning example yeah. of how to pick up those breadcrumbs. Yeah. Um, and I want to thank Shelby again for yeah. providing her perspective and taking the time to write all this yeah. out for us. No, it was absolutely. It's very, very thankful for that. And I, I was, <laughs> I was just thinking, I was like, okay, Shelby, now uh, time for your uh, video essay premiere. This is this <laughs> is it. You have your script. You're you're writing your script slowly through tweets at us so for for your uh, your video essay about uh, Katniss as Ace and how it reads and how it how it works in the films and then the books. Um, so get on that, make that video essay because we'll watch it. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. And finally, on Instagram, we had 13 votes for the book and three for the movie. Uh, Noah Ramirez YT said, haven't read the book, but this is the best entry in the series by far. Too bad this movie has a Last Jedi situation where it's a really cool setup and the next movie just drops the ball. This is really interesting. So they say they haven't read the book. Uh And I'm so interested to see because obviously, uh, from like I said, from what we've discussed, from my memory, I did not like the third book. I haven't seen the the last two movies. Um, And I'm wondering... Yeah, because that was my reaction to reading the books the first time of liking this one a little bit. I even Mm -hmm. liked this one less than the first one on my first read. I like this time I liked them about equal, I think. Maybe even this one a little bit more than the first one on reread. But I thought that not having read the book and feeling that way makes me think that maybe the books, the movies actually do follow the books closer than I thought. Because I was Mm -hmm. thinking... I've, I've, I've pondered it several times throughout these episodes about whether or not the movie is going to commit to the book story or if it's going to tweak it for sort of a wider, not even wider because the books had tons, but you know, for a more traditional more generic, traditional generic uh, yeah. movie ending. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like potentially maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, I would say that in comparison to the last Jedi, based on my memory of, and and uh, Rise of Skywalker, based on my memory of uh, Mockingjay, is that the Mockingjay was maybe too, whereas Rise of Skywalker was a mess because it, it tried to please everybody and to be too many things and, and do too much stuff and was just a mess um, for a lot of different reasons. Mockingjay, I think the problem is, from my memory wasn't that it was trying to please too many people or be too many things. It was that it, it was knew exactly what it was and what it wanted to do. And that was just not going to please a lot of people, mm-hmm. which is something that the last Jedi, like, like the mocking Jay to me feels more like the last Jedi from, again, from my very vague memory <laughs> in, in, in knowing what it wants to do and saying, I don't care if you like it or not, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Whereas the rise of Skywalker is like, Oh, you like this? You like this? You like this? Oh, you didn't like that? We're going to make fun of that in this movie because that's dumb. Boo. You like this? Like, yeah. Uh, So it's interesting. It's an interesting comparison. It's interesting to me, too, because this middle entry, both the book and the movie, I feel like 
seems to me polarizing because I've seen people say that it's their favorite out of the trilogy and oh, also that favorite. it's the worst one yeah. out of the trilogy. Yeah, I think I think that's the second and third are the only ones that would get that because the first one is just it, it's your introduction. It's interesting. Yeah. And it's 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 it, it's all it's all um sort of. It's all new. It's, it's all, all new, fresh. and it's all and and where you go from there is all completely right. up in the air. Whereas in yeah. once you get to the second and third, the second series, and third one, then have to keep those yeah, balls in the yeah. air. Yeah, the second one you're comparing it to the first one, and the third one you're you're kind of seeing if it gives you the ending you want. Right. So yeah, there's a lot more expectations. Whereas the first one doesn't really have any expectations, so it's a lot easier to to not be polarizing. I feel like yeah. Uh, and our last comment, them cultured vultures said, "My vote is for the book." I agree that Katniss's inner monologue is sorely missed. I also may be in the minority in thinking that Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Plutarch a little too disinterested. I imagined him to be a little more eager in manner. If Toby Jones wasn't already in this series, he might crush it. On the other hand, Sam Claff Claflin Claflin. On the other hand, Sam Claflin and Jenna Malone work really well. Good movie, better book. I agree overall. I, I like Philip Seymour Hoffman a lot in mm-hmm. this role. I think he does. I, I don't mind his disinterested nature. I think he's playing kind of exactly what I expected f- upon reading the book. But um, I can see that. And I, mm-hmm. I, I agree with the rest of it. I did want to go back and actually, because what I just said about trilogies, I think is true for like every trilogy, right? Because yeah, you think probably. about like Lord of the Rings, you think about um, uh, this, any of the Star Wars movies, Back to the Future, it's just kind of some of the yes. big ones off the top of my memory. It's the first one is never nobody's least, not a single person's least favorite installment of a trilogy is the first one usually. Yeah. Or at least when I say least favorite, like they don't have strong feelings about it. like they may not like it as much as the others, but then nobody like usually hates the first one in the installment. If you think to like uh, Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Every, like most people like Fellowship of the Ring. In fact, in some people's it's fa- it's their favorite. But like nobody dislikes Fellowship of the Ring. Some people have men math feelings on Two Towers, and then most people like Return of the King, but with some math feelings. And I feel like that's the same for every series, like every yeah. trilogy. Well, I think you know if we take it to that kind of back to that kind of juggling metaphor. I think it is easier to throw the balls up in the air than it is to keep them in the air. Yeah. And then to and catch them. Yes. At the end. And to catch them <laughs> and you're not going to catch all of them. And some people are going to be unhappy about the ones that you dropped. And some people are going to be unhappy about the ones that you caught. Yeah. Also, I hope, I really hope somebody comes crawling up to tell us that they actually hate the fellowship of the ring after that. So I would be astonished. <laughs> and here's the thing, all those uh, real quick, any of those, if you come on the, uh, the comments of this episode, I'm going to name off a handful of series here. If any of these series you, you like dislike or have strong negative feelings about the first one in the series, please let us know. Uh, Lord of the Rings, back to the future. Uh, the Hunger Games, uh, Star Wars, the original series, Star Wars, uh, the the sequel series, and even Star Wars, the prequel series, I would argue. I, I feel like that's the exception. That's maybe the exception in that most people dislike a lot most of them. People, well, a lot of people like, dislike all of them. Dislike, but, a lot but, of people dislike but, but, Phantom but, Menace. But, 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 Phantom Menace is for a lot of people their favorite in that series or, or, or not their least favorite for a lot of people. And my, I know for myself, I think Phantom Menace is okay. Not great, but I like moments in it. 
I, I same for uh, Revenge of the Sith. The second one's gar- just terrible. And I think most people, if they had, like, if you had to pick, here's what I guess I want to know. I guess this is the way to ag- ask it. If you had the, all those series I mentioned, if you had to pick your least favorite movie in the series, if it, if it, if it would be the first movie, let us know. Like okay. in any of those series, okay. like if your least favorite in any of those things is the first one, let let us know. And now there may that may be like Lord of the Rings. Somebody's least favorite might be Fellowship because they just like the big moments in the se- in two mm-hmm. and three, but. I, I guess I'm not doing a good job explaining it because I feel like there's a kind of a combination of like your least favorite, but you ha- actually have active negative feelings about it as well. Anyways, I'm just interested. I feel like nobody. <laughs> the first know. one is just it's, <laughs> it's 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 like you said, it's easy. It's it, it's you throwing the balls in the air. It, it's nobody dislikes the first movies in the series or if even if they dislike them, they don't dislike them as much as other ones. Because in the, in the in the prequel series, people hated it from the beginning. Right. And so they just kept disliking just kept two and it. three, fair, which is a little different. Whereas, uh, I don't know. Anyways. Can't drop the balls if they weren't in the air to begin with, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, would, I would say that, like, Fellowship might be my least favorite of the three. But I still really like it. It's not like mm. I dislike it. Like, it's just, it might not, like, it. If I, I had to Fellowship pick my favorite. is my favorite, actually. Yeah. And for some people, I, I have, I could go either way on it. I just... I think now it's pro- it's probably like the strongest film, but I think I think we've discussed this before at yeah. length in the Lord of the Rings episode, yes. so we don't need to get into Go it. Go back and listen to our Lord of the Rings episode. Yeah. Anyways, final. Did you do the final numbers? No. Okay, do it. All right. Well, if you've been keeping track, then you will not be surprised to know that this is another landslide, uh, and the winner is the book with thirty-eight votes to the movie's five. Again, I was not expecting this to be quite as big of a crush <laughs> as what we got yeah it's interesting uh yeah i i kind of expected i think it's going to be similar throughout the whole series i think well i'm i'm interested to see how mocking jay stacks up yeah see how see how that plays out it'll also be tough with that because it's kind of hard to compare because it's one book split into two movies right you're kind of voting I don't know. I mean, ideally, you'll be voting for the first half of the book for or whatever right. versus the the first movie. But I think that's not necessarily going to be the case. Like, it's going to be tough for people to divorce their feelings. Like, if the movie had some weird, terrible turn and did something ridiculously bad in the second half, mm-hmm. I think that could skew that's the fair. Fir- part yeah. one votes, even though. Yeah. Or sorry, I, I, I guess I meant vice versa. Whatever. You get what I'm saying. We'll but, find uh, out. We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. All right, Katie. Well, normally, this would be where our learning things segments go, and we are going to have a learning things segment. But first, to do a little prep work, Katie's going to teach us some folktale facts about beauty and the beast. Walt Disney Pictures presents its all-new 30th full-length animated motion picture. Is anyone here? Mama, there's a girl in the castle. Good. A girl. The classic story of beauty and the beast. He was a lonely beast, cursed by a mysterious spell. And she was the beautiful young girl who could set him and his kingdom free. She's the one. She has come to break the spell. They were two complete opposites. I don't want to have anything to do with him. She is being so difficult. Until something wonderful happened. 
folklore and fairy tales, um, that's a special interest of mine. Uh, it's a subject that I know a fair bit about and that I'm passionate about. I did a learning things segment on fairy tales in general during the prequel to our Tangled episode. If you remember way like a year and a half ago now, I think. Uh, you don't need to go back and re-listen to that segment, but I would recommend it as a primer for our discussion of Beauty and the Beast because uh, some of those ideas are going to come back. I decided to move our usual book facts section ahead of the learning thing segment this week because I think it makes more sense for y'all to have this context ahead of the next discussion. That was what made the most sense to me. The story that we recognize as Beauty and the Beast is thought to be around 4,000 years old. Uh, it likely has its origins in either the Mediterranean or the Middle East before traveling to Europe and turning into something closer to the story that we know pretty well today. Beauty and the Beast is one of the most popular tales in the oral tradition of folklore. Uh, it has recognizable variants appearing across Europe, Asia, and North and South America. Within the Arne Thompson Uther Folklore Classification Index, its type is actually named for the tale itself, type 425C, Beauty and the Beast. I always forget about this classification system, and it always delights me every time you remind <laughs> me that it exists. If for, yeah. for many reasons, one of which being that apparently one of the people involved was named Uther, which is yeah. delightful to me, uh, being a Warcraft fan. <laughs> um, so the, the Arne Thompson Uther Folklore Classification Index um, is, is basically a classification system that identifies similar traits between uh, folklore stories across all different cultures and groups them according to those similar traits. Um, so uh, the Arne Thompson Uther system defines type 25C as having four, four stages. 425C. Four, 425C. I'm bad at numbers. No, That's why I'm a word person. 425C <laughs> uh, as having four stages, the monster as husband, disenchantment of the monster, loss of the husband, and recovery of the husband. You might also recognize those vague plot points from Greek mythology and the tale of Cupid and Psyche. The version of this story that is most recognizable in modern Western culture comes from France and was called La Belle et la Bête. Um, pardon me while I stumble around some French here. It was published in 1740 by French novelist Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve, who was... I wonder if <laughs> Denis Villeneuve is uh, descended maybe, from... <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Uh, she was a contemporary of other fairy tale heavy hitters of the time, Madame Delnoy and Charles Perrault. I have to imagine Villeneuve is a pretty common name, considering probably, it just means yeah. like new city or whatever, yeah. or new town. <laughs> like, it's probably pretty common. <laughs> Um, in 1756, her quite lengthy version was abridged and republished by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. Uh, I wanted to mention these two versions specifically because they're the texts that I will be comparing to the Disney film. Um, I'm going to read both 
like I said, Villeneuve's version is fairly long, so if you just want to read the Beaumont version, that's totally fine. Uh, I will link um, a link tree to both of those and several other variants on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, those will be attached to the prequel episode posts. So those the prequel episode posts get pinned to the top of our Facebook and Twitter pages, so you should be able to find this pretty easily. Uh, a couple other fun facts. Dr. Elizabeth Waning Harris, a professor of English and comparative literature, identifies the two most popular uh, types of fairy tale in the 18th century as one, the fantastical romance for adults, and two, the didactic tale for children. Beauty and the Beast is interesting because it actually bridges that gap, with Villeneuve's version being written as a salon tale for adults and Beaumont's version being written as a didactic tale for children. Side note, a didactic tale is a story intended to teach, particularly moral instruction. Mm -hmm. Um, folklore scholar Dr. Maria Tatar notes that Beauty and the, the, the Beauty and the Beast tale incorporates a common theme found in folklore around the world, that of animal brides and grooms, pointing out that the French tale was specifically intended for the preparation of young girls in 18th century France for arranged marriages. And we'll talk more about that in our next segment. It's time now for our Learning Things segment. Let's go ahead and learn a little bit about Beauty and the Beast, Stockholm Syndrome, and why you're probably wrong about it, dispelling a rampant myth that makes Katie go absolutely feral. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. All right, quick disclaimer. If you have memed this meme before, this is not a personal attack on you or your intelligence. We've all proliferated dumb stuff. The important thing is whether or not you stop when presented with new evidence. I have memed this meme before. <laughs> uh, well, I say that. I, I'm sure I have I, uh, agreed with it at some point or laughed along to somebody joking about it at some point or whatever. Like, mm. I, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if I ever, like, posted anything. Like, I don't know why I would have. But Yeah, you probably not. No, but I'm saying, I, but I, I, I think there was probably a point. It seems very likely to me that there was probably a point where I at least thought it was a somewhat from hearing it in passing with you thought it was a rather compelling argument. Mm -hmm. I will also say that I do think we're in the backlash to the back. No, we're, we're almost coming into a time where we're in a, it, there's a lot of, of sort of um, response to this meme. Yes. And I do mention that okay. later on in my okay. section. Sorry. Yeah. So if I opened my phone or a new tab on my computer right now, Googled Beauty and the Beast Stockholm Syndrome and went to images. I just want to give you guys a quick meme sample. These are all paired with images from the animated Disney film. Beauty and the Beast, a monster locks a girl in his castle until she loves him. Once upon a time, Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome, it works. If Beauty and the Beast teaches us one thing, it's that looks don't matter as long as you keep her locked up long enough. Beauty and the Beast, a heartwarming tale of Stockholm Syndrome and Beast love. I like that one especially because that person reached for bestiality and just couldn't quite yeah. get there. Beast love. Beast love. 
Oh, so it's not bestiality. They're a fucking no, person who looks not, like an animal. <laughs> but not, anyways. It's not. Furry that's love. A whole other, that's a whole other thing. Uh, so, you, yeah, you mentioned that we're, we're kind of in the, the backlash, I guess you could call it, to this particular meme right now, which is good. Yeah. Because if we hadn't reached that point, boy, I think this would be my, origin, my villain origin story. <laughs> so today... I'm going to present a two-prong argument about why this common mimetic misunderstanding of Beauty and the Beast is, to put it succinctly, wrong. Prong one, an internet-based understanding of Stockholm Syndrome. And I just want to note that in this first prong, I'll be referring exclusively to the Disney film, since that's the version of Beauty and the Beast most oft memed in this manner. As with most psychological conditions, the understanding of Stockholm Syndrome that appears in memes is incredibly surface level. Essentially, the internet's understanding is that in cases of Stockholm Syndrome, a prisoner forms an emotional-slash-psychological bond with their captor. However, that is roughly where the internet's understanding ends. And when you take that surface-level understanding of Stockholm Syndrome and apply it to Beauty and the Beast, it's not surprising that you end up with 1 plus 1 equals 2. Is Belle taken captive by the Beast? Yes. Does she eventually form a bond with him? Also yes. So why is this widespread belief incorrect? Well, it largely has to do with the next, and kind of important, element of Stockholm Syndrome that the prisoner, upon forming that bond, becomes sympathetic towards their captor and their cause. Now, in this context, become sympathetic doesn't mean that the prisoner feels bad for their captor or experiences pity for them. It means that the prisoner's worldview or belief system seems to shift to align with their captors. Consider one of the most famous examples of Stockholm Syndrome, Patty Hearst. Hearst was an heiress who was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army in 1974. While held captive, she was recorded denouncing her family and taking on a new name, and later worked with her captors, the SLA, to rob banks. So as a result of her captivity and what she endured during it, Patty changed into someone whose beliefs at least appeared to align with her captors. Now, does this apply to Beauty and the Beast? Of the two main characters, consider who we see undergo change throughout the story. It's not Belle. It's the Beast. If Belle had Stockholm Syndrome, we would see her goals and behavior begin to align with that of her captor, but that's not what happens. In fact, just in looking at the Beast's character arc, Beauty and the Beast is arguably a better example of Lima Syndrome, which is a proposed inversion of Stockholm Syndrome, in which the abductor develops sympathy for their hostage. Because in fact, what we see in Disney's Beauty and the Beast is the Beast changing to be more like Belle, not the other way around. It's so obvious when you say it aloud <laughs> <laughs> that it's amazing that anybody could get it wrong. But <laughs> 
prong two, ignoring historical context. If there's one thing that the internet loves to do, it's ignore any kind of context. In the case well, of the internet has <laughs> named one time, one single time where the internet has ignored context, ignored context. So in the case of Beauty and the Beast specifically, we've been ignoring historical context. As I mentioned, the Disney film's closest historical relatives are Villeneuve and Beaumont's version of the story. As I also mentioned, these French versions of the tale seem to have been specifically intended to help young girls prepare for arranged marriages. So let's talk about that. Villeneuve and Beaumont were both writing in literary salons in pre-revolutionary France, and their audience was primarily upper-class women and girls. In their versions of the tale, the beast is never brutish, like what we see in the Disney movie initially. He is ugly, but gentle and kind. He asks Beauty if she will marry him, but he respects her refusal and continues to be kind to her while patiently waiting for her to fall for him. Now, couple this with the idea that this story was being told in a time, place, and by a group of people for whom arranged marriage, sometimes to a much older man, was an unavoidable reality. When you put it within its historical context, Beauty and the Beast becomes a story about a young woman forced into a relationship with someone who seems like a monster, but turns out to be a genuinely good guy, and the protagonists end up actually falling in love and having that quote-unquote fairy tale happy ending. For the women telling and listening to this story, it was an escapist fantasy. So the widespread idea that Beauty of the Beast is an example of Stockholm Syndrome is propped up by ignorance on two fronts, a lack of understanding of the psychological condition itself and the exclusion of the story's historical context, which is aided by the idea of arranged marriage being very far from our scope of understanding in the modern Western world. I was glad to see more pushback against this meme following the 2017 live-action remake. Uh, my other issues with that film aside, like I said, this could easily be my villain origin story. I realize that this is a niche hill to fight and die on, but I get one. <laughs> All right. There you go. Katie's long-awaited Beauty and the Beast Stockholm Syndrome. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to you. Let's now find out a little bit about the movie that spawned a million memes, Beauty and the Beast. There's something sweet. Straighten up. And almost kind. Show me the smile. But he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined. And now he's dear. You look so... And so unsure. Stupid. I wonder why I didn't see it there before. It's a story filled with fun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Adventure. Sacre bleu. Invaders. <laughs> and dozens of wonderful new Disney characters. Whoa! Keep it down. Featuring six new songs from the Academy Award winning composer and lyricist of The Little Mermaid. Beauty 
Beauty and the Beast is a 1991 film directed by Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, uh, both of which directed The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Kirk Wise also directed the American production of Spirited Away. Hmm. The screen, which I assume in, the, in this regard, directed means like directing the voice actors and their performances because obviously the film is already animated and everything like and maybe there's some uh there may have been he may have been involved in like you know the um the 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 language adaptation Mm -hmm. who knows but like yeah obviously wasn't directing like visually what was going on in the film yeah he wasn't like storyboarding or anything yeah yeah uh, the screenplay is by Linda Wolverton, uh, who also wrote Maleficent, The Lion King, Alice in Wonderland, the 2010 version, and like a million other credits on Disney properties to varying degrees of uh, involvement and relevancy. Uh, you know, lots of video games. Some of those are like characters. But yeah, yeah, tons of different. Uh, but the main big ones, Maleficent, Lion King, Alice in Wonderland 2010, uh, where she got like screenplay written by credits. And she is the main credited screenplay writer on this film. But there's also a list of like 12 people who have story by credits right. for this film because tons of people worked on this movie. And then my my understanding is that this movie went through a lot of different iterations yes. as well. Yes, and we'll talk a little bit about some of that here shortly. The film was based on, uh, as you mentioned, La Belle et la Bette uh, by Jean-Marie Le Prince uh, de Beaumont. <laughs> And also the 1946 French film directed by Jean Cocteau, uh, which is also called Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. The film stars Paige O'Hara as Belle, Robbie Benson as Beast, Richard White as Gaston, Jerry Orbach as Lumiere, David Ogden Steers as Cogsworth, Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Potts, Bradley Pierce as Chip, Rex Everhart as Maurice, Jesse, crazy old Maurice, Jesse Corti <laughs> as LeFou, uh, Joanne Worley as The Wardrobe, and Tony Jay as Monsieur Dark. Dark? Dark. Dark. Dark? I don't know how to pronounce it. It's French. Um, and it was a very small role, but Tony Jay, for people who don't know, is... Uh, hunchback he's the uh, yeah he went on to play um uh why am i blanking on his name i don't know and i'm blanking on it now too because you're i just looked it. it up today while i was doing this research i was like tony jay that's the guy who did the voice of uh, the villain the from villain the from hunchback. Hunchback. <laughs> what is his name Hellfire. <laughs> oh, Claude Frollo. 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 yes there Judge it is Claude Frollo. 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 um kind of similar and like character design too I, I don't remember what this character looks like in Beauty and the Beast. He's only in it for like a scene, right? Or he's, it's like two scenes, but as soon as he comes up on screen when we're watching this, okay. you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. The film has a score of 94% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, a 95% on Metacritic, and an 8 out of 10 on IMDb, making it one of the better reviewed films we've ever talked about. The movie had a budget of $25 million and made roughly $440.1 million at the box office, making it the third most successful film of 1991. Uh, sorry, the, that $440 million, I believe, is with re-releases. Mm. Initially, it made like $300 something. With re-releases, it made more than that. But um, regardless, its initial box office in 1991 made it the third most successful film of 1991, topped only by Terminator 2 Judgment Day and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. It was the most successful animated Disney film at the time and the first animated film to reach a $100 million box office return in the U.S. and Canada in its initial run. Nice. 
So after Snow White's success in 1937, Disney was looking for other similar similar stories to adapt. Beauty on the Beauty and the Beast was high on that list, and attempts were made to develop it develop it in the 30s and in the 50s, but ultimately it was abandoned as it proved to be a challenge for the story team. Work finally began under producer Don Hahn, with Richard Purdom attached to direct a non-musical version of the film. Also at the behest of Michael Eisner, Beauty and the Beast became the first Disney animated film to use a screenwriter. Traditionally, animated films were developed on storyboards rather than in scripted form, which is fascinating yeah, to me, and I did not know that. I didn't know that either. And when it says animated films, maybe it means Disney animated films. That's Maybe that's just how Disney yeah. did it. I, I mean, you know, I've seen, like, you know, the, the pictures of them, right. like, storyboarding. Storyboarding, but, but it I, still I seems assumed, like you would have done that after. Yeah, I always assumed that there was a script, yes. and then they storyboarded. Because that's, so spoilers, that's how, like, every every other movie is made is you write a script and then you storyboard from the script and that informs how you shoot the right. film and like what visually what the film looks like it's wild to me the idea that you wouldn't have a i don't know yeah, it's that's very really interesting. interesting i don't know how you couldn't have a script i don't i don't i truly don't understand that this comes from wikipedia i don't if somebody out there knows more about what that means or what uh, like what, what if it literally was just storyboarding with like lines attached because obviously what are the there has to be a script of some sort. The people are reading some, like they're reading lines. There's a script. I, I, don't, I don't know. know it's it. very fascinating. I, don't know. I, I saw that note and I had to include it because I was like, wait, what? So upon seeing initial storyboards in 1989, Jeffrey Katzenberg ah, was dissatisfied with Purdom's ideas and ordered the film be scrapped and started over from scratch. Uh, a few months after restarting the process, Purdom resigned as director. The studio then approached the Little Mermaid directors, John Musker and Ron Clements, but they turned it down due to fatigue from having just finished The Little Mermaid. Then the big decision was made. Katzenberg decided he wanted a musical and asked Howard Ashman and Alan Menken to score the film into a Broadway-style musical. To accommodate Ashman, we discussed Ashman in the Little Mermaid yes, episode. Yes, we did. We did a whole segment on yeah. him in the Little Mermaid prequel. prequel if you want to, if you want to learn more about him, more about Howard Ashman specifically. But to accommodate Howard Ashman, uh, who was dying from complications of AIDS or dying of complications from AIDS at the time, the production of the film was moved from London to Fishkill, New York, where Ashman lived. There, Ashman, Mencken, Wise, Trousdale, Hahn, and Wolverton retooled the film's script. Katzenberg liked this new direction, and storyboarding began. The production flew story artists back and forth from California to New York for storyboard approvals from Ashman. I'm sure there's a fascinating documentary about all this because it would appear that Ashman did far more than write songs for this film. Uh, there is. There's a documentary yeah. called Ashman, or yes. Howard, Howard, I believe. Yeah, it's called Howard. It's on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Um, he probably did similar work to what he did yeah. for The Beauty, Little Mermaid. Uh, Little Mermaid, yeah. yeah. Yeah, where he he's essentially he's writing songs, but also very much acting like, essentially as like a director kind cr of creative force. Uh, yeah, like yeah. A, a creative director essentially on the film. Uh, Disney had originally considered casting Jody Benson from The Little Mermaid as Belle, although they eventually decided upon Broadway actress and singer Paige O'Hara in favor of having a heroine who sounded quote more like a woman than a girl. That is utterly fascinating to me that they even considered having the same person voice both of these characters. Yeah. They would never do that today. Not today, no. no. Never. No. It's also it's also interesting to me though, because a little bit of trivia about Snow White that a lot of people know um, is that the voice actress who voiced Snow White actually had it in her contract that she could not do any more voiceover work. Yeah. 
because Walt Disney wanted her to only be the voice of Snow White. Yeah. Wild. And when it says Disney had originally considered casting Jodie Benson, I'm getting most of this information from Wikipedia, which is very, generally a pretty trustable source. But the wording of Disney originally considered right. casting Jodie Benson was. We don't know how yeah. to what extent. Right. We don't. Somebody might in a meeting at one point might have went, "Hey, maybe we should get Jodie Benson to do it," and then immediately everybody was like, "Nah, she was no, we no, we can't do that." You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and yeah, then it could and be. then twenty years later during a documentary, somebody recounted the story of how one person recommended they cast Jody Benson and then that you know that ends up in Wikipedia and it's true but but like like how yeah. you know like how true is how it, true really? is it um, or the opposite they could have been borderline about to sign her to thing yeah. and then you know who knows I, I I didn't look into that level of detail on this uh so some other actors that were originally considered to voice the beast super fascinating to me they ended up going with uh who did I say Robbie Benson Robbie Benson uh, a Broadway star I believe uh, originally, they considered Lawrence Fishburne, okay. Val Kilmer, okay. and Mandy Patinkin. I'm imagining the Inigo voice. <laughs> As the Beast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That could be good. Somebody needs to recut <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Like, we need to find a... Okay, this is the thing we need to do. We need to find a really good Mandy Patinkin uh, like Inigo. impersonator. Yeah. And have him do Inigo, but doing Beauty and the Beast lines and cut it into the movie. That would be fantastic. Or get Val Kilmer impersonator doing Batman. Or Val Kilmer impersonator doing Doc Holliday as <laughs> the Beast. Or a Lawrence Fishburne impersonator doing Morpheus as the Beast. All of those would be fantastic. Uh... Uh, so John Cleese was originally intended to voice Cogsworth, but later turned it down to voice Cat Catterwall in the Universal Pictures animated film in American Tale, Fifle Goes West, which I thought was interesting. And this one, the thing that makes the most sense of all things, uh, originally considered for the role of Mrs. Potts, Julie Andrews. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> makes a lot that of makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Of all of the if you had asked me until in a few world. years, yeah, if you had asked me into a full few years ago who had voiced Mrs. Potts, I might have been like Julie Andrews, maybe I don't know. <laughs> like I don't think I would have known. I would have been like, pro yeah, probably, probably Julie Andrews. <laughs> Production on Beauty and the Beast ran on a compressed timeline of two years as opposed to the traditional four years due to the loss of production time that they spent on the earlier non-musical version of the film that they ended up scrapping. Mm. Um. Getting into some technical stuff, Beauty and the Beast was the second film after The Rescuers Down Under produced using CAPS, which stands for, and I think I've mentioned this in one of our other episodes. I'm I think Little sure Mermaid, we've actually. About this before, I think yeah. I mentioned it in Little Mermaid. Um, using CAPS, a uh, computer animation production system, which I think it's funny, it says is the second film using this because I think they used it partially in or to some extent in little mermaid it's the boats yeah. at the end i made a note of well, it. well i think the fun fact about the little mermaid was that it was like the last one to not entirely use caps wasn't yeah it? something like something that. like yeah, that yeah, something like that um uh and caps is a digital scanning ink paint and compositing system of software and hardware developed by disney or for disney by pixar Caps was put to significant use during the Beauty and the Beast waltz sequence in which Belle and Beast dance through a computer-generated ballroom as the camera spins around them in a simulated 3D space. Mm -hmm. 
very famous scene uh, and and very obviously uh, computer generated. Uh, the filmmakers had originally decided against the use of computers in favor of traditional animation, but later, when the technology had improved, they decided it would be used for the one scene in the ballroom. Uh, before that, CGI environments had been printed out as a wireframe, but this was the first time Disney made use of 3D rendering. The success of the ballroom sequence helped convince the studio executives to further invest in computer animation and thus every other Disney movie going forward. Fun personal fact. If you get my mom talking about seeing this movie for the first time in theaters in 1991, she will recount very reverently watching the ballroom, the ballroom scene, scene and being in awe. Blown away. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a wild scene. And it, I mean, it's it, in... I don't want to say it's aged poorly. It's not it, like no, it, it it's hasn't definitely, aged poorly. It's, but it's definitely a noticeable departure from the animation style of the rest of the movie. Yes. And you can tell it's something different. Yes. Like even as a kid, I feel like I knew that like there's something different but it, is happening. Yes, but it here. is quite a breathtaking no, scene. It absolutely is. Uh, and this is a fun thing. Uh, Disney is famous for reusing animations. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one instance in which they did. The final dance between Belle and the Prince was reused from the vinyl, final dance sequence between Princess Aurora and Princess Prince Philip. That's a whole different movie uh, from the <laughs> 1959 film Sleeping Beauty. According to Trousdale, this was done because the production of the film was nearing the deadline and that was the easiest way for them to get it done. Again, the movie was produced on like half the timeline yeah. that it normally would have been. And it's only noticeable if you've seen Sleeping Beauty yeah. a million times like I have. Yes. <laughs> and I haven't. So I never would have noticed. I've seen Sleeping Beauty once or twice. Uh, the majority of the sculptures seen in the castle are apparently different earlier versions of the beast mm -hmm. from like storyboarding and stuff, which I thought was interesting. Oh, also, this is all IMDb facts. Take it with a grain of salt. Starting on that one going forward until Disney slash Pixar's up in 2009 was nominated. Uh, this was the only animated movie to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Nice. It was the first and only until up. So this is fascinating, assuming this is accurate. Songs take up 25 minutes of the movie's 120-something minute runtime, mm -hmm. uh, and only five minutes of the film are without any musical score at all. So there's you know music what? throughout Katzenberg most of the film. asked for a Broadway show, and that's what a Broadway that's show what they is. Got him. That's what he got. All music, all the time. This is fascinating to me, and I, I'm really going to look out for this while we're watching the film this time. The smoke scene during the transformation at the end, uh, when obviously when the beast transforms back into a human, is actually real smoke and not animated. It was originally used in the Black Cauldron in 1985. Okay, apparently. how did they do that? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's some form of early green screen type of technology, oh, okay, potentially, okay. Or, or, or screening technology. Uh, I, but I'm really interested to look at it and see... Like if you can tell. If you can tell that yeah, that's never, real I've smoke versus like animated before. smoke. Although it, that is like probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. There you go. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. Uh, this is super fun and random. Jackie Chan performed the voice acting and singing for Beast in the Chinese dub of the movie. Or the Ch the what? Mandarin dub of the movie. Yeah, what? apparently. Jackie Chan. Yeah, who doesn't? Uh, lots of people. Well politically it's a complicated yeah, but yeah. apart from that great great love jackie chan super great um just don't talk about, don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the past he has said some not so great things about hong kong and the chinese relationship to hong kong mm. and etc etc look it up if you want yeah or don't and just enjoy jackie chan movies <laughs> it's up to you <laughs> 
I still enjoy Jackie Chan movies. I'm just like, ugh, gruh, God damn it. Uh, so Hidden Mickey, this is a whole category on IMDb. Mm-hmm. After Gaston, and if you're watching the movie, you can look out for Hidden Mickey Mouses in the film. After Gaston and the men chop down the tree, there are three droplets of water that form an upside-down classic Mickey head, apparently. Also, a trio of stones by the roots to the left of the cottage at the beginning of the film form an upside-down vision of the symbol. And finally, during the human again sequence, which I assume is when he transforms, or when they all transform. No. Is that just, not? just give your fun fact and then we'll talk about it. During the human again sequence, Cogworth, Cogsworth is outside inspecting his shovels when a heap of ashes is dumped on him from above. Three circles appear in the snow on the left side of the screen that form the classic Mickey head. Okay, so for one of the special edition DVD releases, they added a scene to this movie oh. that was like a scrapped song called Human Again that the castle objects sing. Uh, okay. FYI. They want to be human again. We will wait. be. Just can't wait to be human again. <laughs> yes, kind of. Um, FYI, we will be watching the theatrical release and not the version that has that song because I don't like it and it's my birthday. There you go. And finally, as always, uh, I have to include some critical reviews. The film was a critical success. You know I have to include an Ebert review, but first we're going to talk about what Gene Siskel of Siskel and Ebert had to say. At the Chicago Tribune, he gave the film four out of four stars, saying, quote, Beauty and the Beast is one of the year's most entertaining films for both adults and children. And on their Beauty and the Beast edition of Siskel and Ebert, both Siskel and Roger Ebert proclaimed that the film is, quote, a legitimate contender for Oscar consideration as best picture of the year. Nice. So Ebert, one of the rare times I agree with one of his reviews, <laughs> was a big fan of the film. <laughs> Katie, where can people watch? Obviously, people know where they can watch, but <laughs> let's say it anyways. Well, as always, you can check with your local library, or if you still have a local video rental store, you can check with them. Or if you still have it on VHS like the rest yes. of us. Yes. <laughs> Um, I, I have this actually on VHS and DVD. Yeah. I don't have a Blu-ray, I don't think. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you're probably a pretty good chance that you can find this one available to rent a physical copy. Oh, yeah, yeah. A library somewhere. would be a very yeah. easy place to find this, yes. I feel like. You can also stream it if you have a subscription to Disney Plus mm -hmm. or DirecTV. You can also rent it for around 3 to $4.00. From Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, AMC Theaters On Demand, or Direct TV. There you go. Those are all the places you can watch Beauty and the Beast 1991. At some point, maybe we'll talk about the 2017 version. But I would like to. Not now. Not now. <laughs> not now. <laughs> I'm still going to just edit in Evermore where it makes sense in the, in the 1991 version because I love that song. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyways, Katie, uh, this will be fun. I'm excited. Uh, we watched this not that long ago, a couple years ago. Yeah, we watched it a couple years ago. Just I because I, I made this my birthday, um, uh -huh. my birthday pick. But I am also in the habit of requesting it on my birthday, just because I like watching it. Yeah. I don't think we watched it last year, no, we but didn't. I I maybe we did. the year before I think, that. I think the year before we watched it on my birthday. Yeah. No, it's and it's it is one of my favorite Disney films, especially of the 
that that Disney Renaissance. I mean, I like mm-hmm. I like like all of them, but it's, Beauty and the Beast, one Aladdin, of my favorite movies, is are two of my favorites. Blank. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's very good. I like it quite a bit, um, and I'm excited to watch it again and then talk about it in one week's time because we'll be breaking down Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And and keep keep being awesome. awesome.